Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare, and you found the place where we talk horses. On today's show, I have a veterinarian, Dr. Madison Siemens from Cornerstone Equine Medicine in Capitan, New Mexico. He labels himself a cowboy poet, philosopher, and a pretty sorry bronc rider. Good morning, Dr. Siemens. How are you this morning? Good morning, John. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. I uh, hear uh, New Mexico's getting a bit of snow this time of year. Oh, we have a white Thanksgiving. Yes, we do. <laughs> Being in the high mountains, that's that's where we're at. There you go. You know, I know you've lived a long life. You you told me you're uh, you're approaching seventy. Why don't you give us a little background of of your career up to this date? Well, it, that's really interesting. Everybody comes to this in a different way, I suppose. We, when I was a kid, a little kid, and I was about seven years old. We lived in town. And a guy with a camera and a pony came up our block taking pictures of kids on ponies and hoping he could sell those photographic emulsions to the adoring mothers. I sat on that pony at the age of seven and, man, viewing the world through a set of horse ears changed my life forever and for the good. I still have a copy of that picture and, you know, that uh, that paint pony doesn't seem nearly as wild as he did at the time and that red plastic cowboy hat not nearly so stylish as it was then but i'll never forget seeing the world framed in a set of horse ears wow and when did you become a veterinarian <laughs> that's that's a whole nother story i was i was late in life i didn't become a veterinarian until 1985 so i've been i've been in i've been trying to learn how to be a veterinarian for the last 37 years yeah wow where did you go to school i went to school at texas a&m so in 1985, so that, yeah, you were pretty late in life coming to, to veterinary. And what took you so long? Were you in the animal industry? I, I went to work for my first big horse outfit in 1970 in the Panhandle of Texas and and, uh, and dinked around there for a couple of years riding bronc horses and, and uh, chasing rodeo girls and took a horse that was having a hard time gaining weight to a local veterinarian. And he offered me a job being gopher, holding horses for him and whatnot. And so I didn't have nothing else to do, so I started working for him, Dr. Richard Mays, in uh, down in Bear County, Texas. And uh, man, I'd work for him for about three or four days, and I'm just thinking, wow, man, this is wonderful. And so I, I worked for Dr. Mays for a year, and and he fired me, and not not because he didn't like me, but he but he, to quote him, he said, I don't want to fund a retirement account for you, and what you really need to do is just go up to A and M and become a veterinarian yourself. I'm kind of tired of looking at you. <laughs> wow, pretty good. That's a pretty smart guy. Very pushed very. off in the right direction. He did. He did, and it's it's amazing. I mean, you know, getting fired wouldn't be a positive. <laughs> <laughs> would not be a positive experience for some people, but it was for me. Very good. Well, one of the reasons we uh, have you on the show today is because you've just got back from the AAEP convention. Is that an annual thing? Yes, that's that's the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and it is an although it's got American, it's really an international body, and it's a it's an educational group. Uh, we do fund uh, a lot of basic research, uh, scholarships for veterinary students. I mean, it's a it's a big deal. It was it was formed in 1954, and uh, has been doing nothing but growing ever since. I was was able to hear a talk by by Dr. Copeland. I think his first name is Bob, but his last his first name is Doctor, and his last name is Copeland. And he was one of the founding members of uh, of our organization. 
He told a story about in the late 40s, early 50s, there was a group of veterinarians that mostly did racetrack stuff in Kentucky and Ohio. And once a year, they would get together and, and have, drink coffee and, and just, just trade stories and, and tips. And uh, he asked one of the one of his colleagues that, that early morning of, uh, I think it was 1953, uh, about a certain, a specific aspect of what he did. And the guy said, oh, that's a trade secret. Dr. Copeland said, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. There ought to be a way where we can share information. And from that, there was 10 veterinarians that came together and founded this amazing organization called the American Association of Equine Practitioners. In 1970, I was working for a veterinarian through high school, you know, and it was a small animal practice, cleaning kennels and that kind of things. We had the Veterinary Medical Association, but I had not heard of the AAEP. And at, at that time, it seemed like veterinarians did the whole gamut of practice while we were a small animal practice in the summertime the vacation vet relief guy was a large animal practitioner and he'd come in treat the small animals and they'd talk about horses or bovine or whatever the the heck they talk about but the veterinarians did everything and and now it's a it's such a specialized field it got me thinking I know this is going to be a little bit off topic but as a vet student when do you decide what practice you're going to go into large animal or small animal what do you learn everything first and then decide oh i think i want to be a large animal veterinarian well that's that's a real good question and one of the one of the things things have really changed a lot in my profession over the last you know 40 years or so but overall things haven't changed that much what they what they need to do is they need to teach you how to pass the board exams so my, my my favorite quote of myself is, they didn't teach me how to be a veterinarian in just eight years. What they taught me was how to pass a board exam so I could be really dangerous for about 20 years while I was trying to learn how to become a veterinarian. <laughs> so what you, what you have to do is, you, you know, you got to take a little bit of everything because even though you're not interested in cage bird medicine, you know, you got to know something about those things, something about the gestation of a gerbil and, you know, where the scent glands are on a, on a skunk in order right. to pass the board exams and so most schools will allow you to f to follow a certain track or a certain path uh so you can take for example if you know i was always interested in the horse and so i was able to take some large animal tracks some equine tracks whereas if i knew i was going to be interested in feline medicine for example you could take some elective courses in just specifically feline medicine but overall everybody has to get ready to take the same exam oh wow and so then that's kind of nice that the aaep was formed because that allows those equine practitioners to share that wealth of knowledge and so that they can kind of build on just what's horse information and and then grow from there right absolutely and and uh, you know most states require continuing education credits every year to be able to maintain your license and that is that's a that's a legal prescription there in order i think it's just directed mainly so that we'll try to keep up with the latest stuff you know but in reality at least for me if i didn't go to this meeting every year i mean i'm already way behind and i'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute but i, I would be I would be so far behind is that I would be more dangerous than I already am, you know. 
the right. first one of these meetings I attended was in 1984, and I walked out of there. It was two days. It was a big hotel ballroom in Dallas. It's, it's in a different city every year, different region. They, they try to do West Coast one year, you know, mid-country one year, and then East Coast one year just to make it easier on folks to travel. The first one of these, so I walked out of that. It was two days, 600 veterinarians. Man, you walk out of something like that, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. I mean, it's just crazy how much information there is. And there's, you know, you walk away from that deal going, how much How much could they ever possibly know? You know, it's 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 kind of like, you know, they, they, they attempted to close the U.S. Patent Office in 1906, thinking that that was the end of it, you know. And boy, oh boy. Right. This year, this year where the meeting was in San Antonio last week, there was 5,000 veterinarians there for five days. And oh there were God. so many venues going on. There was at least three three lectures going on at any given time. You you couldn't choose at all. I mean, it, you couldn't see at all. You had to choose what you wanted to see. And that's what is so much fun. It's just, it is incredible. Meeting meeting with colleagues that, that are suffering the same types of problems that you're suffering. You know, the train wrecks they're having in Minnesota are not very much different than we're having in New Mexico it's a schizophrenic type of, of existence there because I've been in practice long enough that some of these talks I can say, well, you know, I already kind of knew that. Thanks for confirming it. And then the other talks were going on out so far out of my league. What on earth am I doing here? I don't even belong to mucks. I don't, I don't, I don't deserve to muck stalls for these people, much less be a veterinarian. So you walk out of there kind of, kind of confused. <laughs> Can I just drop my license in a box here and just go home? Well, Is that <laughs> yeah. You've been reading my mail, John. Thank you. But I, that, that's the fun, that's the fun part. I mean, because things change and the stuff, it's so interesting. I mean, the stuff that was considered the standard of practice 20 years ago, some of that stuff will be considered malpractice now because things change, you know, or that science and medicine changes every day. There's a new drug, there's a new procedure, there's a new gadget, but the art of medicine has never changed. The art of medicine hasn't changed since Adam Lance, the first abscess on his T-Rex. I mean, it's it's using your senses, using your eyes and your and your ears and, and sometimes your nose and your mouth. I mean, to try to figure out what's going on on the inside of these guys because they can't talk to you. I had a right. visit with a pediatrician one time. He goes, oh, you don't know how hard we have it. You know, our patients can't talk to us. And when things go wrong, mom is really mad at us. I said, it sounds like being a veterinarian. <laughs> Pretty much the same thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Except, except that little junior can't kill you. Okay, that's the only difference. So you're probably sitting around the uh, dinner table uh, after one of these long days of conferences. What kind of stories do you share with other veterinarians? Oh, usually it's train wrecks. It's kind of like cowboy poetry, you know, if if nobody dies, it's funny. <laughs> it may not be funny for a while, but eventually, you know, I remember one story about a guy, young guy, just straight out of school, somebody I know very, very well, but I'm not going to tell you his name. The lady called him, didn't know him well, but had been to, his, had been to her place a few times. And so she wanted a contract to come out and castrate one of her colts. She had a couple there that were candidates. And so... You know, which one do you want to coach? Well, cut the lighter one. So he shows up and there's this great big stout clay bank sorrel and a palomino. So uh, he, he, he castrated the palomino. She oh. called him late. Well, she wasn't there. So she called him later the next day, threatening all kinds of lawsuits and call him, calling him everything but decent. She wanted him to cut the lighter one in weight. 
<laughs> so don't assume nothing man <laughs> what baxter black said don't assume nothing there's two things a cowboy don't know nothing about one of them's a cow the other one's a horse you know <laughs> so, <laughs> you got to be real specific <laughs> let's go over some of the new things that you learned about veterinary medicine and maybe something that will help our listeners manage their their horses a little bit better i think we were talking before the interview about giving butte to your horse and how that can upset some horses' stomachs. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. That's a really interesting thing as well, is, is that anytime you're talking about pharmaceuticals, a, a specific drug will go through three phases in his life. Okay, the first phase is it does everything. I mean, it'll fix your horse from, it'll cure your acne, it'll teach him to speak Chinese, you know. And then, yeah. you know, a few months or years down the road, no, this stuff is worthless, it doesn't do anything. And then after, as a rule, two or three years, we've been using it a lot, and now we kind of know what it'll do and what it won't do. So I'm never the first or last kid on my block to do anything. I like to kind of wait and see what happens before I start jumping into something because I have, I have made that mistake before following the leaders and live to regret it. So, you know, we've known that for a long time that, that all the, in, the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, we've known for a long time that they had the potential, potential for causing gastric ulceration. In, uh, at, in fact, it's in, in the human population, it causes right dorsal colitis, and uh, that is responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people every year. Although, you know, it doesn't get reported because you don't think, you know, I'm going to eat an aspirin and, and then I'm going to get colitis and die. But it's, there's, it's a cumulative effect. You, you're not going to just eat one and then you're sick. You know, it takes time because what, what those NSAIDs, which is butte and aspirin and ibuprofen and, and all of these different NSAIDs actually will stimulate the production of extra acid. And that extra acid is what causes that gastric ulceration. It's it's not as common as you'd think. I, I've got several old rope horses that would really look uh, curious at you if you offered them some grain that didn't taste like butte. You know what I mean? Because they've been eating it for so right. many years. They just they just think that's what grain tastes like. But there are a few that will develop that sensitivity. And so we started using a new class of antacids called proton pump inhibitors about 20 years ago. It's a very interesting class of drugs. So we think of antacids as being like Tums or Rolaids or Pepto-Bismol or something like that, just coating agents or actual chemical agents that actually buffer the effects of the acid. This new set of drugs called proton pump inhibitors act in a different way. They actually work on the parietal and chief cells in the lining of the stomach systemically through the bloodstream. And they stop these cells from making the acid. They don't just buffer it. They stop it from making it. Which sounds good on paper, but like a lot of things, it's called the doctrine of unintended consequences. It does right. a lot of things. It does a lot of things we don't want it to do. And so this one study that they just reported here about a month ago, they were, they were looking at some horses that they had on some butte, and they were giving them one of the proton pumps inhibitors. The drug is called Amiprazole. Everybody out there probably knows the brand name, but our legal department suggests that we don't mention that. And it starts with a G and ends with a guard. And so what they were doing is they were putting these butte, these butte patients on one of those, on Amiprazole. And they were planning on doing a study for 21 days. And they had to stop it at the end of the second week because two of these patients died from complications of the combination oh, wow. of those drugs. And so, 
you know, we, we think we're doing the right thing, and then after a few years, we realize this is part of the evolution of this particular drug's life. Now we've found out what it will do, you know, and what it won't do. And I just, that's pretty interesting if you think about that. So again, we, we go back to that doctrine of, you know, what was considered the standard of practice a few years ago would be considered malpractice now. Right. And so then is the, is the takeaway from that is that if you're going to use butte, just use butte. And if your horse turns out to be sensitive to it, stop using you'll, yeah, butte. You'll know, you'll know right away. There's, there's other know. pain relievers that are, that are more gastric sparing than, uh, than just the traditional butte or banamine. They too have their own set of potential side effects. But one of the really interesting takeaways on this thing was that Tylenol, in a couple of studies, Tylenol or acetaminophen, it's a brand that's been around for so long. You, you, they've got some generics out. You can go to Walmart and get the, you know, whatever their their off-brand is, and it's probably as good as the regular Tylenol. But anyway, use, using Tylenol at a dose of about 10 grams twice a day was as effective as Butte or, uh, or Banamine in relieving pain in lame horses. Wow. I thought that was pretty interesting. And and it is it's gut-sparing. So it'll kill your liver, but, you know, it won't give you a gastric ulcer. So <laughs> choose, choose your poison, you know. Uh, no, it's actually the, the – I think the thing with the Tylenol was, was some types of anemia. It's, and, it's, and it's very interesting because different animals will metabolize drugs in different ways, okay? So, for example, a single Tylenol will kill a cat. Right. And right. like anesthetic agents, you know what I mean? The – the dose of an anesthetic, a sedating agent that I would give to a horse would kill a cow, you know, the same size. So you got to be careful. You can't make these broad sweeping assumptions because one drug does one thing in one animal. It doesn't mean it does it every, in every animal or for every reason. So yeah, interesting to consider. And in, in like the uh, Equiox, we give one of our horses requires Equiox as an anti-inflammatory. And that's the same dose that they give a dog. It's like 56 milligrams. So, Exactly. Now, that tends to be gastric sparing as well. However, in some fairly recent studies, it, if you have these horses on this chronically for a long time, we have seen some reports of gastric ulceration from horses that were on, that were on, that the name of the drug is furococcib. So uh, mm -hmm. apparently it's, it's not foolproof. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, we've taken our horses off of it, and I'd give it on pre-ride days and then one day post-ride. So Exactly. That, that, and that's, that way, that's the way it should be used, honestly. That's the way it should be used. Yeah, because we were, we were giving it every day. And I, I think it lost some of its effectiveness, too. Is we weren't noticing as big a result when we were using it every day. And that's just us. And a lot of the stuff you do anecdotally, which is why – you know, sharing this information is so important because somebody can try it and go, oh, you know, I'm not sure it's working or not. And, oh, my friend had that experience. Exactly. And, um, and that's and that also that's that's where the hard science comes into play here, because there's there's something that we call outcome based or anecdotal medicine. And there are there are a few drugs that that I use regularly that all we have is that. OK, and, and that is not invalid. And so if something I've been using, I've been using one immune stimulant drug for horses with a, with a cough and a runny nose. I've been using it for 20 years. There's not a whole lot of real hard science out there. It's just kind of anecdotal. But in a study that was done, oh, three or four years ago now, they were looking at these, they call them drugs. They don't really have a name for them. They call this one an immune stimulant. 
and they've just looked at the, at the use of these drugs, and they had they had a survey of like ten thousand veterinarians. I mean, using this hundreds of thousands of doses of this drug, and and the report was it was, it seemed to work. And so, yeah, there's no hard science on some of this stuff, so that anecdotal stuff can be meaningful. But the other end of that is true. There's a lot of, having been in this profession for so many years, I've seen a lot of things come and go and heavy on the go. I mean, big time go. There's stuff There's stuff out that was out there that was the hottest new thing three or four years ago. You can't even buy it anymore because it doesn't work. Right, right. What about some of the other things you may have learned there? I imagine when you go to a convention like that, you have as part of your practice, you have certain interests. Like my local vet, Dr. Tolley, he- Oh, John really Tolley? Yeah, John Tolley. I, I love John Tolley. Oh, I love John Tolley. He's the, oh man, if you got him as a veterinarian, you have hit the long ball, my friend. I, I, I haven't yeah. seen him at this meeting in three or four years, but we have shared a frosty adult beverage upon one or two occasions. And I just love talking to the guy. He's very, very bright. Yeah, he is very smart, and and he's always been uh, he's always been available to on the show when I've had a question or something like that. So it, he's he's very knowledgeable, but he he does have an interest, I think, in uh, dentistry. You know, he's looking at the long list of talks that he might attend. He probably says, "Oh, you know, this one this one on endocrinology may not be my favorite, but this one on." dentistry that there might be some new techniques which were your favorites when you went to the aaep convention everybody goes through phases in their practice life and and uh there was a time that i was i did a lot of broodmare and stallion work actually i've, I've published some articles on that in in uh, scholarly journals but over the recent few years our focus on reproduction has declined because uh, people just aren't breeding mares like they used to. I've always been interested in podiatry, the study of feet, and so that's mm -hmm. been a that's been a big interest of mine because that's I think most of us. I mean, I'm I'm in general practice. I don't I'm not a specialty guy. I don't I'm not a big referral hospital. I have what's termed in our industry as a fire engine practice. That means I'm running up and down the road putting out fires. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professional truck driver, but my truck has a x-ray machine and an ultrasound system in it, you know. So, But I, my, my focus has been on podiatry for a long time, and that's because it's no foot, no horse. And in my practice and in most mobile solo equine practices in this country, the podiatry is the focus. Because that's that's where you're going to have most of your problems, and that's where you're going to have most of your rewards in how we approach these things. So that that has been an interest of mine for for a long time, and and over the last oh, 10 years or so, the day before the annual convention starts, there's a, a session for for vet students to come and get some stuff in equine medicine and surgery that they're not going to be able to get in their veterinary colleges. Again, because they're they're being trained to pass the boards and not being trained in any kind of... They, they get a little bit of everything focused on passing the exam. So uh, for the last several years, I've been able to, to teach podiatry courses to the students. I find that just so encouraging. These kids are coming to this meeting on their own dime in the face of final exams. So, I mean, they're, they're taking time off and traveling to this meeting. And we had, we'll have between 80 and 120 students attend these labs every year. This is, wow. this is the future of our profession. These kids are so on fire for this. They're so hungry for knowledge. It is so encouraging for, for an old geezer like me. As I told you, part of my existence in these meetings is I don't belong here. And then when I, mm -hmm. when I teach these students and I can tell them the simplest things, 
I mean, it surprises me how many people don't know that a horseshoe nail has two sides to it. And you can, you, right. can, you can share with them these little things or how your technician or how your client should hold the horse. Little things that just make a huge difference. And so when they thank me for that, that's so encouraging. You know what I mean? Because they say, oh, I never knew that. You know, thanks for showing up. So that part of the meeting has been really fun. It's Man, good I, to know because I've I've heard some farriers go, ah, vets they don't get enough uh, they don't get enough study in the feet and uh, you know we and, don't they're they're exactly yeah, right we, we don't, don't. Know feet like we know feet and, well I wouldn't go I wouldn't go that far <laughs> but no our our professions there's no reason that we should be mutually exclusive I have in 37 years I can think of one farrier that I just can't work with. I just can't do it. It does. If I if I said it was dark outside, he'd say it was light, you know. But I would so all but him. Every farrier I've ever met was more than happy to work with me, because nowadays, well, for the last ten years, I've had the digital X-ray systems in my truck, and so it's so inspiring and educational and informative to be able to stand there with a farrier that's really good at what he does. And I can point him out some pathology on this horse's foot radiographically that he cannot possibly see unless he has x-ray glasses. And we right. can work together to help this horse. And I can tell you that I, I think I get more referrals from the farriers that like me than I do from anybody else because we should be on the same page. We're on the same team, man. And once these guys can see what's happening on the inside, then it's like you can see the light come on in their head. It's going, wow, man, this is great. You know, so we can approach it that way. And and again, going to this meeting every year, we're able to to learn more stuff. You know, uh, for example, 20 years ago, people would say, well, you need to you need to balance the hoof. OK, you need to go ahead and shoot him in a balanced condition. What does that mean? Yeah, really. If, if you can't put a metric to that, okay, there's no way. And so what has happened over the last many years now is that people are starting to look radiographically at normal feet. This is what a normal foot looks like. And this is the relationship of the coffin bone and all those structures in the lower leg. This is the relationship of those bones to the hoof capsule and the wall and the sole and the frog and all of that that makes up this amazingly complicated structure. That the advent of MRI and CT, computer-aided tomography, has really changed our approach to how we work on feet because it we can see structures we never knew were there. When we first started doing ultrasound in lower limbs, oh, 1985 or 86, I rode with a with a, an amazing veterinarian named Carol Gillis, and she forgot more before breakfast this morning than I will ever know. But people hadn't been doing ultrasound. Norm Rantana down in your country started a bunch of this stuff back in the early 80s. But we just didn't have, we didn't have the equipment available, a portable equipment available to us so we could throw one of these things in our truck until mid-80s. So I rode with Carol for a little while, and we were looking at a lame horse. And I said, Carol, what's that? And she, she said, you can call it whatever you want to. Nobody's ever seen it before. <laughs> so, <laughs> And so, and so now we know, I mean, with the CT and the, and the MRI, we can see, I mean, even, even a high, high definition digital X-ray, which is what most of us have in our trucks now, even a high, high definition di digital radiographs can't show you what an MRI can show you. What, what the radiograph is, it's a shadow. This is a high tech shadow, but it's just a shadow. You can't see much of the inside of stuff with some exceptions. Right. 
And so now with really good ultrasound, MRI and CT, we're, we're understanding that the, not only the presence of certain structures, but its function. And now we can see, okay, like, you know, 15 years ago, nobody was talking about palmar angles. And now we know that that's a major source of pathology. So little things like that that turn out to be pretty big things in the long run that we learn from this continuing education. Somebody in academia has sat down and said, okay, what does a balanced hoof mean? What does that really mean? And started to put some metrics to that, something we can measure, something we can say, this guy's got a, got a negative palmer angle. And when I talk on the phone to somebody in New York and tell him that, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Fascinating. That's interesting. Are there uh, any new innovations or treatments for Cushing's? We have a Cushing source. I always use this podcast to uh, to solve my own problems first. I mean, no, I don't. But <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if you can use me to solve that problem, we're both geniuses. Our, our thing with Cushing's is is uh, is we got we got one choice. That's Perglide. That's it. Prescend is the brand. Interesting drug. They started using it for Parkinson's disease in humans. I don't know why they thought it was going to be a good idea to treat Cushingoid horses with this, but they did. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to lower seasonal ACTH levels. So that's that's a hormone that comes from the brain that stimulates your adrenal cortex to make cortisol. And so in the Cushing Oid horses, it's called PPID. Basically, it's a it's a tumor growing in the pituitary gland. Now, when you say you know the C word, cancer makes people freak out. So this is this is not cancer like you're going to die okay this is this is neoplasia this is abnormal growth it always happens in older horses and it's what happens is that this actual tumorous tissue is secreting abnormal hormones that's stimulating the adrenal cortex to secrete abnormal levels of plasma cortisol so that's why they grow long hair if you know if it's august and your horse's hair is four inches long it's cushing's you don't have to do a whole lot of laboratory tests to know what that is. If it walks like a duck, you know what I mean? But the problem with that is that there can be some early onset Cushing's horses that haven't shown the full-on don't shed in the summertime types of symptoms. And so that's where the testing really comes in comes into play. And there's a seasonal variation there. So it's going to be different in the spring than it is in the fall. So That's the thing. It's, it's trying to track that those levels is... I mean, it's, it could be an expensive proposition. Do people change the dose of Prescend throughout the year? That's a really good question. And I don't, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. And I probably, my gut on this is, well, there was a great paper that was presented here last week on that, on that very thing. And there are some horses that just don't respond to the one milligram dose. And there are some right. horses that if you give them a milligram, they'll colic a little bit. So, you know, boy, it's a case-by-case -case situation. The take-home on that was that the vast majority of Cushing's horses will respond to that one milligram once-a-day dose, and that will bring the ACTH levels down to what we consider to be quote-unquote normal. But there are some of those horses that won't. But interestingly yeah. enough, those horses that didn't necessarily respond the first year Many of those responded the second year, and all of those horses that did not respond had a similar longevity to the horses that did. So what that tells me is, and, and it was really interesting that 
the the data here is really skewed, John, because because we're dealing with an old population, right? Okay, so it's it's right. it's kind of like it's kind of like this COVID thing, you know what I mean? There's a lunatic fringe songwriter named John Prine, and uh, he'd been he'd been fighting lung cancer for about ten or fifteen years, and he was in in Europe, and he died. Well, he tested positive for COVID. And so the cause of death was listed as COVID. <laughs> well, hell, a guy had lung cancer for 15 years. What do you think killed him? You know, so, he, you know, he, he died. He died with it, but not from it. Let's get real here. And so what well, some of our older horse population is dying from stuff that may not be related to the Cushing situation. But if you just you throw all that out and you don't use that as modifier. So you just look at the at the rate of survival for all Cushing old horses that were on Perglide. It's about three years. It just depends on where you want to spend your money. I think that's part of the emotional aspect that we have to these horses. You know, I mean, if we got real right. about this and what these things really cost us, we'd probably never have one, you know. But if right. if, if you can if you can buy three years for this guy, three years in, in a quality of life, okay? And so when when they when they compared the longevity, they just they use an, another control of horses that that weren't treated and it apparently did not affect their longevity but it did affect their quality so they had they had fewer bouts of laminitis they had fewer bouts of some type of immune mediated problem respiratory crud because their immune system is suppressed because of all the cortisone that their adrenal glands are pumping through their system you know it was one of those things is that is that the quantity of life was not changed but the quality of life was greatly improved so that's what you got to look at very interesting very interesting before we you know kind of wrap this up for today i understand that you've got a new book you're working on yeah i do i do it's it's called it's, it's called you can't make this stuff up no what what it's it, it's called never trust a sneaky pony and other things they did not teach me in veterinary school you know who james harriet was all creatures great and small right yeah okay so if james harriet and jeff foxworthy wrote a book this is what it would be okay because it's there's a lot of books out there about being a horse doctor there's a lot of books out there like well like james harriet's books okay we went to two different veterinary schools okay he went to that school where all of his patients lived and all of his clients loved him i went to that other school and so <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't always work out but it's it was it's fun so basically my book is there's some warm fuzzies in it don't get me wrong but basically it's why we do what we do the, the projected outcomes in some situations the surprising outcomes in others and a humorous take that i have on all of it i mean if you can't approach this with some humor it will drive you nuts and i was kind of on the edge anyway it took me 20 years to write Trafalgar Publications, horseandrider.com. You can pre-order it now. It'll, it'll be out in January. And the audio version, recorded and performed by yours truly, will also be available at the same, same time, ebook as well. So I illustrated it myself. I did the cover art. And uh, it, was, it was just such a fun project. The folks at Trafalgar are just amazing. They do the Horse and Rider series, and they do a lot of books and Really, really good, really good bunch. I've worked with them in the past too. They've, uh, they're, there's some good people out there. They're always looking for good stuff, and so to get your book with them, that's that's an endorsement right there. Yeah. Well, we'll just see how that plays out. They may be pretty sorry that they did this, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Dr. Siemens, this has been great fun, very informative. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. If people want to find out more about you, your book, uh, and Cornerstone Equine Medical, where shall we send them? So, uh, the easiest way to get to me is a uh, website. It's cornerstoneequine.com, cornerstoneequine, with only one E between cornerstone and equine.com. It's got my phone number and my practice hours and all that kind of stuff, plus my books and my paintings and anything anything else that you might be interested in learning about me, probably more than you ever wanted to know. I'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes at wopodcast.com. Thanks again for being a part of the show, Dr. Siemens. We really appreciate you being on. I enjoyed being here. Thank you so much. That will do it for this episode. Thanks to Dr. Madison Siemens for sharing some time with us. Dr. Siemens has a lot of stuff going on with his practice, his writing, and his art. Look for his book, Never Trust a Sneaky Pony, to come out in January. Be sure to get that audio copy, too. Dr. Siemens has a voice for radio. You can check it all out at cornerstoneequinevet.com and I'll have that link to his website and contact info at wopodcast.com. We're cozying right up to the Christmas holiday. I hope you and your horses are staying warm and healthy. As always, if you would like to share a story or experience about your horse or suggest a guest, let's hear it. Send an email to john at woepodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Woe Podcast. It's always great hearing from you. Here's wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a great start to 2023. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and writing buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.